Al Jazeera podcast. Exploring the dark universe, that's the mission of the Euclid Space Telescope. European scientists hope it will solve some of the deepest mysteries of the cosmos. But for what purpose? And can Europe develop a space industry of its own? I'm Cyril Vanier, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. Let's bring in our guests, Pierre Ferry, Euclid Mission Manager at the European Space Agency. You are joining us from the European Space Operations Center that's in Darmstadt, Germany. In Cardiff, Chris Conselis is with us, professor of extragalactic astronomy at the University of Manchester. Thank you for being with us. And joining us from Saint-Rémy-de-Provence in France is Paul Taylor. You're a senior fellow at the Friends of Europe think tank. Welcome to each and all of you. I, I want to ask the same question to all of you just to kick us off. Uh, on a scale of 1 to 10, how excited are you by this mission? Just a number for now, and then we'll get into the why of it all. Uh, let's start with you, Pierre. Well, 10, and I'm biased because I'm working on this mission. I was expecting a 12 from you, but, but, we'll, but, we'll, get back, but we'll get back to it. Chris? Uh, I, would, I would also say 10, but I would go higher if I could. It's, it's one of the most exciting things that's going to be happening for a long time. Okay, no surprises there. We'll want to know why in just a second. Paul? Well, I would say about five, actually, because I think it's very exciting. <laughs> and fascinating in terms of the pure science and our knowledge of the universe. But I'm not sure that it's really going to help Europe to remain competitive uh, in the space age. And I think that there are lots of bits missing in the fact that it had to be launched by an American launcher mm. because we don't currently have a European launcher available that could do it uh, is a symptom of the problems. Yeah, and I, and I knew that that was a particular area of focus of yours, and that's why we mentioned that at, at the top of the show. Look, those grades are on brand for all of you. Uh, let me start with, with Pierre and Chris. Pierre especially, I know, so as the, the mission manager for this, um, I'm sure you've had to explain this mission. You've had to give the one-hour presentation version of it, and you've had to give the 20-second version of it in your PowerPoints or to various deciders. Give us just the 20-second version of what this mission is for. So the 20-second uh, version is that basically we don't know what 95% of the universe is made of. And for that, we, have, we need to understand what we call dark matter and dark energy. And Euclid is going to build the largest and most accurate uh, 3D map of our universe to date. And this is going to be, I think, mind-blowing both for cosmology and for a lot of areas of astrophysics. Chris, to be clear, I know you're not wearing the, the, the ESA polo like Pierre is, but you've been involved with this Euclid mission for since its inception, right? Since 2011, more than a decade. Um, and you also okay. gave this a 10 out of 10 on the excitement scale. It would have been a 12 if I had allowed it. <laughs> it should be a 12 for you. Um, do you want to build on what Pierre just said? Sure. So, as Pierre said, 95% of the universe, we don't know what it is, dark matter and dark energy. Most of that's dark energy, and that's the main focus of Euclid, is to understand the dark energy by mapping the universe in 3D, by looking at how galaxies and dark matter is concentrated throughout the universe, throughout time as well. And by doing that, we can figure out what is the dark energy. Is it, is it something which is constant in the universe, or is it something which is increasing in strength? And then we can understand perhaps new physics. And Euclid is the by far the best instrument for, for deciding this right now. Okay. Paul, 
Just before we go uh, deeper into the science of this, I, we said, we said already, we established your focus is not so much on the science. It's, it's more of a terrestrial nature. It's why Europe has fallen behind, is falling behind, perhaps, in the space race, why it wasn't even able to launch uh, with a European launcher, had to use an American company. We'll get to all those questions. What interests you most about this? Yeah, I think that this is an area where Europe really is in the lead, is, is this uh, space science. Of course, it's not just Europe on its own. Many of these are collaborative projects in which uh, NASA and the European Space Agency work closely, and uh, scientists around the world still have that commonality, despite uh, all of the geopolitical tensions that there are. Um, but the fact is that um, you know, the bits of space that I look at, which are European security in space, uh, European economic competitiveness in space, the story is not uh, as, as dazzling as it is with the Euclid uh, program. Okay. All right. Um, Paul, I'm going to involve Pierre and Chris a little more heavily, I think, over the next 10 minutes or so, because we have the privilege of having uh, two esteemed guests and scientists to explain this. Let's look... Since this mission aims to explore two unknowns, right, dark matter and dark energy, which despite the commonality in the name, the dark, they're actually two separate things. We need to make that clear from the outset. You said that. Uh, dark refers to the fact that it's invisible, I believe. You'll feel free to correct me if I'm not saying it right. Um, but they're two separate things. So let's look at the launcher, what is, has actually been sent into space and what is right now on its journey, a 30-day journey, uh, to uh, the, there's a point known as uh, L2, again, correct me. Um, the launcher basically right. looks like a big SUV. It's about three and a half meters by four and a half meters. It's about, it weighs about two tons. So as I said, a, a, a biggish SUV. And it's got two instruments on board. Let's start with the VIS, V-I-S, Visible Imager. Pierre, what's that for? Yeah, maybe just to say, uh, you're talking about the spacecraft, because the launcher has brought us in space, has uh, directed us toward this famous L2 point, but this is really the spacecraft, okay, which contains basically the spacecraft itself, mm -hmm. a telescope, and indeed two instruments. So this is an imager in the visible light, so the light that I, our eyes can uh, see, and it actually has a very large field of view because we need to map a large uh, fraction of our sky. It's more than 600 megapixels, okay? And uh, so it's quite a very large camera. And uh, the second instrument, NISP. Wait, well, hold on, hold on. Let's stay, let's stay on the first yeah, one because, sorry. as we said, it's, re <laughs> it's really kind of two submissions into one, if I'm not mistaken. So VIS, as you said, is an Im imager with a large field of view. It can look at about one-third of our sky. Is that right? No, not at once, huh? but we have a six-year mission, and over the six years, we will cover one-third of our, we will map one-third of our skies up to 10 billion years, uh, light years. Chris, how does this work? How do we map one-third of the universe? So this basically has a field of view, which is three times the size of the moon on the sky. So if you see the moon on the sky, this could take a picture three times as, as large as that in area. And so what this does is every day it does a total of 10 square degrees on the sky. And so take pictures of 10 square degrees, and over the course of the mission, it'll cover about a third of the sky. So in any one day, it doesn't do the entire sky. It just does sure. 10 degrees, which is about 20 times the size of the moon. And, and, and then that is done every day in a new part of the sky, and then you make a map of the entire sky through that process. 
and it's it's a 3D map. Well, the pictures are not 3D. The pictures are just pictures, and you see the galaxies and stars. You see anything in the universe in that direction. So what we do is we measure what's called the the redshift, which is is how fast the galaxies are moving away from us, which is a measure of the distance. These things are are, are highly correlated. This goes back to Hubble's law. We've known about it for 100 years. The further away a galaxy is, the faster it's moving away from us. So we can measure that recessional velocity, how fast it's moving away from us. We'll know how far away it is. And so that's really the mapping. The mapping is done in the analysis of the images themselves. So Viz takes pictures, and then also we have NIS, the other instrument, which takes infrared pictures. And we have ground-based imaging from telescopes on Earth that are, that are also scanning the same part of the sky. And when you put that together, you can figure out how far each galaxy we see with Viz, how far away it is. And then when you do that, you can make a map with these two, two billion galaxies that, that will observe. You can make a map of the entire universe. So it takes some analysis. It's not something you get right away when you take a picture. You have to actually analyze the data with other data. Pierre, why is the European Space Agency spending $1.4 billion, that amount is in dollars, which is about half of its annual budget on this mission? First, because it's also, we were talking before about uh, leadership huh, in science, and, uh, and this is actually, these are fundamental scientific questions. And uh, in fact, Euclid, these questions were raised uh, quite uh, a long time ago, but in 2007, before 2010, there was a call for proposal for, uh, for missions, and these were identified as high priority questions. And uh, we basically selected uh, Euclid, what would become the Euclid mission, as a medium-sized mission for, for the agency. Okay. And uh, we are basically building, we have built Euclid. And right now, when we launch, as we said, this is going to be the largest, the most uh, accurate of these maps. And this is going basically to bring an order of magnitude better in terms of accuracy uh, about determining some parameters. Uh, we, one is called W, okay, which is a value close to one. So far, we we think it's close to one, but we need very accurate measurements to figure out if actually it's one or slightly different than one, or if it's varying with time in the universe. And so it's a really important question. So we are investing. And at the same time, we are investing, we are building a spacecraft. We are building state-of-the-art instruments with, in collaboration also with the, the consortium industry in Europe. So it's also about leadership in science, leadership in space uh, industry also. Let's look at the second tool, and we'll put up the picture again of the two instruments that are on this Euclid telescope. This one is called NISP, Near Infrared Spectrometer and Photometer. Um, what, Chris, what is that tool? What does it do? What does it measure? So while this lets us see the visual light or the optical light, like, the eye, like what our eyes see, in, in these ga galaxies. NISP is the near-infrared version of that. And so it takes deep near-infrared imaging. So this is light which is redder than what our light, our, our own eyes can see. And it also takes, uh, very importantly, spectroscopy. So it takes a spectrum of the distant galaxies that we see. And that's important for many different reasons, but especially for knowing exactly, as I was, as I was mentioning before, the redshifts or radio velocities of these galaxies. And from that, you can measure really accurately how much dark matter there is at different epochs in the universe, then that will give you an idea of what the dark energy is. So it's in some ways the, the infrared version of Viz, but it also has a spectrograph on it that'll let us measure basically the internal properties and velocities of the galaxies that we'll, we'll see.
So this measures specifically, this is to answer the dark energy question or to start answering the dark energy question, correct? So both of these instruments are designed to answer the dark energy question. That's the primary okay. mission of so it has other science that it can do. It can do vast amounts of science with these images and, and data, but the main goal is to do the dark energy, and that's how the instruments were designed to do. So yes. And and uh, Pierre, a little refresher course on dark energy. Um, our universe is expanding. So some of our viewers may know this. Uh, some may have forgotten it. Some may have never known this. But our universe is ex expanding at an accelerating rate, and that's what you're trying to figure out. Yes, so what came at the end, meaning at the end of the 90s, what uh, came as a surprise huh, at some level was that uh, indeed we detected that the universe was expanding at an accelerated rate, whereas if we take only gravity that tends to pull things together, we were expecting uh, a rate which was s slowing. So for that, we had two theories we are looked at, and one of them is uh, involving this dark energy. And uh, then the next step is to understand what is dark energy. And this is really the origin uh, more than uh, 20 years ago from what uh, Euclid has been built uh, to answer, basically the questions uh, Euclid has been built to answer. Chris, if we don't know 90% of the universe, right, whether it's dark matter, dark energy, both of them combined, it's estimated, uh, composes 95% of the universe. The remaining 5% yeah. is what we see, what we can already know, the stars, the planets, we see that. That's only 5% of the universe. If we don't know almost all the universe, percentage-wise, wh what, what does that mean about the level of our scientific knowledge right now? I mean, if we don't know most of what there is to know, maybe we're wrong about what we think we do know right now. So we know that these things exist because we can see their observational effects. We've known about dark matter for almost 100 years and, and dark energy now 25 years or so. And so we know that they exist. We just don't know the underlying physics of it. We don't know what is mm. the particle that makes up dark matter. We don't know what is the, the effect of the universe, which is creating the acceleration, right? What is the, the, the dark energy? Is it something to do with space? Is it something to do with the way that matter is and, and the universe is constructed. There's many different theories about this. There's no lack of ideas for what these things are. So it's not like we don't know anything about the properties of the dark matter and dark energy. We know quite a bit about them. Uh, dark matter, we know more, but dark energy, we'll learn a lot more from experiments like Euclid. So although we don't know exactly what they are, we do have some idea of, of, of how they interact and 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 the properties, and this is, this is this, so we know it exists, so we just wanna find out more about it. So it's not like it's an unknown completely, we do know a bit about it. Got it, all right. Paul, let's bring you back into this conversation. Thank you so much for your patience. We had to deep dive into the science um, to, to get to some of the wider questions here. As I said earlier, more terrestrial questions. Um, you feel that Europe has fallen behind in the space race, by what measure? Well, I think, first of all, we've fallen behind in launchers. We don't have any launcher that's currently capable of uh, uh, sending a, a, a rocket into space uh, uh, once uh, Ariane 5 will have completed its final mission this week. Um, until we get Ariane 6, a great big uh, lumbering uh, French largely developed uh, rocket, which uh, uh, has been put back and back and is now supposed to fly for the first time at the end of this year, but we're not sure of that. 
Um, but also, um, you know, we're, 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 we've fallen back in other measures, I think, as well. We don't have a reusable launcher. Our new space sector, the sector which is the private sector uh, of entrepreneurs in space, is way behind the United States and, to some extent, you know, behind what China is doing. Um, and the real uh, problem at, at the root of everything is the lack of investment. We're just not investing as much as either the United States, which has the world's biggest space budget. It's estimated the United States spends about $55 billion a year on space. China is estimated uh, to spend about— Hold on, about Paul. Like, I, have those, I have those numbers. Uh, let, let's put them up so we all know what we're talking about. As far as actual uh, government spending on uh, space budget, you're right, that the U.S. absolutely dwarfs everyone else to the tune of about yeah. $62 billion. This yeah. was in 2022, right? So last year. Right. $62 billion invested by the U.S. Let's go down the list. China is pretty far, very far behind, $12 billion. Yeah. Japan, number three, at just about Four, yeah, just about $5 billion. Russia just behind at three and a half, three $3.4 billion. The EU falls out of the top five, and it stands at $2.6 billion invested. So, again, uh, that means that the U.S. is investing 30 times more. story, because there are, you know, the individual member states have their national space budgets as well. Correct. But, you know, that's the, that's the amount that the EU spends collectively, um, and it's not impressive. Um, and, you know, there are various other measures you could look at. Um, Just a second, Paul. Why is that, by the way? Why is Europe spending a lot less than the U.S.? Why is Europe spending, uh, well, as you said, I was going to say spending less than China. But if you tally up all the European countries individually, I'm not sure what, the total, what that totals um, comes to. I think to. if I have to say a single reason, it's because um, the, the United States space program from the outset has always been military-led. It's been about power. It's been about geopolitics. And the 800-pound uh, gorilla or the 800-billion-dollar uh, gorilla uh, is the U.S. defense budget. Mm. And all the American space contractors, the people that the Jeff Bezos's and the Elon Musk's and so on, they are people who are feeding partly off that defense budget. And they're getting contracts to launch uh, satellites for the Department of Defense. And that then subsidizes their civilian uh, business in telecommunications, in uh, internet connectivity, in space tourism even. Um, and the Europeans have nothing like that uh, collective military budget. And um, so there just isn't the same uh, central driving force, which also drives the Chinese and also drives the Russians although both of them have also been in, in, involved in pure scientific exploration, just as we Europeans are. Um, and so, you know, there, there are a number of other measures you can look at. For example, if you look at space situational awareness, as it's called, how do we know what's going on in space? How do we know if something, some piece of junk is about to hit a European satellite? The answer mm -hmm. is, if the Americans tell us, because the Europeans themselves have no comprehensive uh, picture of what's out there in low Earth orbit. And so, um, you know, the low Earth orbit is getting more and more crowded. There are more and more private sector uh, satellites being launched every week of the year. And the result is that there is more and more space debris that is around there caused by space weather storms, called by, caused by misfires and uh, thing, launches that go wrong. It doesn't all fact, fall back to Earth. Uh, through, through gravity, and therefore there's more and more junk cluttering it up. But the Europeans 
really don't have a picture of their own. They rely on the United States for that information. Okay. Um, uh, another, another I, hold on, Paul. I can see Pierre, Pierre's frowning and wants to jump in. Pierre. Yeah, go on, Pierre. No, maybe just to say, we were talking about budget. Huh? You have also, you said it. Huh? We, uh, you can talk about what Europe, the European Commission is spending. But if you look at yeah. 2022, huh, the, the budget of, uh, of ESA, the European Space Agency, uh, coming from its member states, plus the European Union, we, we are above 7 billion uh, okay, euros. Sorry, so say I the number again. The, we are above 7 billion euros for 2022. Okay, Okay, fair enough. So, so that's, the, that's the remark we, we were making, that if you add up what the EU is spending, plus what the European Space Agency is spending, yes. plus what individual member states are spending, it's a different number, and that's a fair point. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, and we have we have leadership in uh, observation, and uh, meaning there are plenty of yeah. things which can be seen as positive, also. But but but, but <laughs> Pierre, yeah. how do you feel about the fact that you had to launch Euclid, right? This largely European project on an American uh, launcher, private launcher. For me, yeah, for me there was no feeling in the sense that we knew we had a mission that would give us some leadership in sci in space science. Okay. Mm. We had a mission which was ready, and then there is a pragmatism to say, okay, we want to keep this leadership in space science. Right now, yes, uh, the launcher, which was supposed to be uh, launched on Soyuz, was not available anymore. So we went very pragmatic to say mm. uh, which launcher is available now and compatible with our mission. I think it's also pragmatism there. Chris? Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I, I've been... Part, was part of that discussion. We were going to have a Russian launcher till the invasion of the Ukraine. Um, and then the Ariane was just not available. And so SpaceX was really uh, the best option. And otherwise, Euclid would have launched after a lot of other upcoming missions were going to launch in the U.S. and uh, would put European space astronomy behind the U.S. And that's something I think that we would like to avoid being Europeans, so mm. SpaceX was really the only option to get Euclid in space as fast as possible. And, and Paul, perhaps speaking to a point that um, both Pierre and Chris have made in various forms since the beginning of the program, this research, this fundamental space research is also something that's going to help contribute, put Europe back on the space map. Of course, and, and you know, it has commercial spin-offs, uh, and of course, many of the, you know, there are many areas in which Europe is leading. And I, uh, I Pierre was right to mention uh, Galileo, the uh, satellite navigation and positioning system, which is uh, uh, reputed to be the world's most accurate at the moment. Uh, Copernicus, which is the uh, um, Earth observation satellite that is, uh, you know, vital in explaining and in, in, in studying how climate change is working, how uh, uh, um, crop uh, patterns are changing and all those sorts of things. Mm. Um, we, we have a number of really important assets there uh, as Europeans, but there are areas where we're behind, and those are areas um, which are commercially important, they are militarily important, they are about money and power, uh, and where we need to catch up. The European Commission, amongst others, is trying to do that, so they've got this project which is uh, been approved to produce a European uh, secure connectivity uh, constellation of satellites. That's something that will allow for uh, uh, telecommunications, internet, uh, also for military communications. Um, and it's something which will give the Europeans more of their own capability and less uh, need to, to rely on 
uh, other countries and other powers. Um, there are really important areas where Europe is doing its best to catch up. But I have to say, in the in the new space commercial areas, we're still uh, lagging behind, and I think falling further behind the United States in some ways. All right, gentlemen, thank you so much to all of you. That's all the time we have for this conversation, but I think we've been able to explain the science behind it, also where it leaves Europe in the global space race. Thank you all for your time. Pierre Ferry, Christopher Conselis, and Paul Taylor. This episode was produced by Mohamed El Aishi, Nihad El Abidi, Abla Kla, and Paul Taylor. Studio sound was by Yara Atala. The program was edited by Leroy Messina, Khaled Sultan, and Joe DeFrias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening. Tune in on Tuesday for our next episode. This week on The Take, the artificial intelligence boom is fueling impersonation scams. So what can we do to stop them? That's The Take by Al Jazeera. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.